Welcome to episode 149 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Margam Hislop of Energy Media. And today we're going to discuss regulatory capture, which happens when regulators are far too cozy with the industries they regulate. Now, let's provide some context here. We've been reporting on a, a big incident up in the oil sands for the last couple of weeks. In May of 2022, there was a spill of wastewater at Imperial Oil's Curl oil sands facility. And uh, that was nine months ago. And the uh, local First Nation, the uh, Athabasca Chippewan First Nation, is pretty upset because they didn't get, uh, they weren't alerted to the spill until early February when 5.3 million liters of industrial wastewater overflowed a storage pond set up to hold seepage from one of these giant tailings ponds. So the leak and the spill have uh, raised significant concerns about the behavior of both the company and the Alberta energy regulator. So I'm gonna to talk to Jason McLean, who is a professor, assistant professor of law at the University of New Brunswick and an expert on environmental law. So welcome to the interview, Jason. Thanks for having me. Now, the, I have to tell you, this was a rabbit hole. I knew it was going to be deep and I knew it was gonna be twisty uh, when I, when I fell into it, because I've been covering the oil and gas industry for a long time, particularly the oil sands, but I didn't know how deep and how twisty. And where I, I've had the opportunity now to talk to academics like yourself, uh, Martin Olshinsky and Drew Uchuk, Nigel Banks, University of Calgary. I've talked to uh, experts who are working in the industry, like uh, Mandy Olsgaard, and listeners can uh, listen to her, my interview with her from last week. And nobody denies that the Alberta energy regula regulator is captured by the oil and gas industry. All sorts of explanations for why that's happening. But one of the things that I, that became clear is we I wanted to pull back to that 35,000 foot view and talk about what is regulatory capture. And I thought that's would be the conversation that we would have today. So maybe let's start with a definition from your point of view, what is regulatory capture? So regulatory capture is the, it's the result or the process. So it's used to describe both where the public interest mandate of a public regulator has been diverted away from the public interest toward the private special interests of an industry or particular firms that the regulator uh, is, is charged with regulating in the public interest. And it's a result of actions or intent uh, undertaken by uh, regulated firms. So it really has those, just to unpack that, it has three pieces. First, there is this identifiable public interest that's at stake. Second, there's been a shift um, in terms of uh, the, the regulator's mandate, again, either in law or in application, uh, away from that public interest toward the private interest of firms or industries that are supposed to be regulated. And that has been, uh, that shift is due at least in significant part to intent and actions of the industry itself. So it really has those three pieces, but from the 35,000 foot um, perspective, it, it's really where you have a, a public interest. It could be in environmental protection, for example, uh, that's really been shifted away. 
uh, toward the private interest of uh, regulated entities or an entire industry, uh, in this case, energy development. And just to be clear, and out of fairness to the people who work for uh, for these regulators, this is not necessarily and probably seldom a case of illegal corruption where somebody's being paid off to look the other way or to falsify documents or anything like you know hide things. That this is basic. It seems like a case of Stockholm syndrome, where the regulator over a period of time begins to identify very closely with the industry. There's a lot of uh, movement between of of staff between industry and uh, and the regulator. And very often the regulator these days, because they've been gutted over the years by budget cutbacks, are, the, the regulator is relying on the industry to A, self-regulate, and B, report, and C, provide data to the regulator. And all of which, you know, the industry being the industry, you know, you can see their self-interest here, in manipulating that data for their own interests and their own information. So is that a fair comment? Yeah, you've really summed up um, a lot of the the particular mechanisms that go in to uh, producing regulatory capture. The the case of the Alberta Energy Regulator and of of provincial regulation of uh, natural resources and environmental protection in Alberta is really a textbook case of regulatory capture because it has all of the above uh, of these of these factors going on. So when you began with the idea of, of Stockholm syndrome, you know what we were in the regulatory capture literature, we actually call that uh, an instance of cultural capture. And cultural capture occurs whereby uh, the the regulator sees the world, and sees the priorities of the regulator and even begins to identify the public interest with the special interests of regulated firms or regulated industries. There's no daylight, in other words, uh, in, in between the two in terms of, of what they see as being the priorities. Now, that can come about through a long relationship where there has been uh, the operation of what we call the revolving door, where you have members of industry going to the regulator and and vice versa, uh, because of the you know the, sort of the, the shared uh, expertise that's there, but it can also and and also as you as you pointed out, you can have you can have situations like the one in Alberta, where the operational budget uh, for the regulator comes one hundred percent directly from the industry. Uh, making um, regulation of the industry difficult, and also where the the regulator does not have adequate independent scientific expertise in order to be able to to hold the regulator to account. But one of the other things that can happen now, sometimes that can be that can be the product of uh, a long relationship um, with you know cuts to budgets over time. A classic example of that is the United States Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, But here we're looking at a very different situation. Um, This is a a regulator that's been captured by design. Yeah, that's a really important issue. And I want to, and and it seems that it's, it's probably not unique to Alberta, but it's unusual. And one of the points that was made to me, and I think it was Nigel Banks, 
who is a used to be is at the University of Calgary uh, mm -hmm. Faculty of Law. He was their chair of their uh, resource uh, department, uh, and he said it's not just the regulator. It, you have to go upstream still. It, it captured the government. And we know uh, if there's one thing about Alberta, we know is how closely it identifies with the oil and gas industry. But I've interviewed Janet Brown, who's a, a pollster in Alberta. And at one point she said, look, all the data says Albertans are oil and gas. They identify so closely with it that individual Albertans uh, are like that. And then, of course, who do they vote for? They vote for pro-oil and gas candidates uh, in, in elections. And it's no secret that uh, governments in the past, progressive conservative governments, have been uh, closely tied to the industry. Uh, the New Democrats from 2015 to 2019 uh, came in. You would think that they would be, you know, more anti-oil and gas, not a bit. And I know they were, you know, that was that's part of the, the political culture to claim that they were. But in truth, the, the government itself literally did nothing on the regulatory side and did all sorts of things that actually benefited the industry. And now, of course, we have the United Conservative Party, which just is is basically may as well, you know, be a, a branch of the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, because all they do is is support the the industry. And I say this as somebody who actually supports the on, an ongoing future for the oil sands. I mean, we we need, you know, even if you support them as I do, because I and, and we should make this clear, I don't, Jason, you haven't, and I haven't talked before, but the editorial position of energy media is that between now and 2050, the uh, oil sand should be transitioned provi from providing feedstock for fuels to feedstock for advanced materials manufacturing. So it's a, it's a post-combustion strategy. And if that were to happen, so you don't burn it, you make stuff with it. Bitumen is very, very far more valuable in that context than it is in making or you know, shipping it off to a refinery. But you can't do that and have a future for this industry for a hundred years if you're, you know, the, the biggest polluter, uh, greenhouse emission, gas emission polluter in, in Canada, and at the same time you've got a captured regulator that isn't holding the industry to envir environmental per performance standards. You know, so. It seems like this is something that has to, got to be cleaned up. Uh, so maybe let's have you address the issue of the capture of the government. What I, I is there any are there any other examples like that in Canada? In Canada, well, I mean, when you look at the uh, the history of Canadian environmental law, which is is only about fifty years old, so it's you know there's relatively short uh, time span. Um, you know, one of the important things to just for listeners to understand and, and back up and realize is that we've never really had either at the federal level or at any provincial level, really robust environmental laws that prioritize environmental protection. We've always had a compromise system of uh, development coupled with the aspiration of mitigating the worst aspects of, of development. Um, and when it comes to Alberta and oil, and gas, and oil and gas, it really is a government industry partnership from the beginning, right? Going all the way back to the 30s, but really especially in the 1970s moving forward. So environmental protection is, you know, it's really, I think at, at the outset, it was really about, okay, I think there was a, a good faith uh, assumption at the beginning, okay, let's try and do this responsibly. 
But fast forward to the last decade and now the early part of this decade, and pretty quickly, you know, the, the mantra of responsible development that the AER puts forward is tantamount to greenwashing. I, there was a, a study that was uh, done in 2013. I think it was uh, Worley Parsons or Meg Worley Parsons. They've had various names, engineering firm. Uh, and they were tasked by the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers with comparing Alberta's en uh, energy regulatory regime with regimes in other countries. So, you know, Norway, UK, US, those sorts of countries. And they came back and they said, Canada, uh, Alberta has far and away the best design, or the best regulatory regime. And you will see this over and over again in, in press releases and in public statements. We have the best regulatory system. What people don't know about that study is that it was by design limited to design of regulations only, not implementation. And it's the it's what I think you in one of your papers called the implementation gap. Besides what you have on paper and what actually goes on out in the field, and there's a big gap. Well, in this case, it's from what I'm being told by other experts, it's a it's a giant gap. It's a chasm. And I would add to that. So, I mean, part of the story of Canadian environmental law in general, and then uh, Alberta, Alberta energy regulation in particular, is that um, not only is there a gap between having so-called best-in-class regulatory design, as you say, law on paper or law in the books, and then the, the lacking implementation and enforcement for a variety of different reasons, but even... And that story doesn't quite do justice uh, to how dysfunctional the situation is, because I would take some issue with um, reports and analyses that would say, oh, our laws, even on paper or on the books, are so great. One of the really big problems with them, and I think you've discussed this with previous guests uh, that I, I've listened to, uh, is that on paper, so by design, our environmental laws in Canada, both federally and provincially, have an enormous, an enormous amount of administrative and ministerial discretion built in. And that discretion um, tends to be exercised in favor of development over environmental protection, and it tends to be very almost reflexively and uncritically upheld by judges in our courts on judicial review. And so, you know, that really kind of cuts out a really simple story between, well, there's the law on paper and then there's the law on the ground. Part of what makes the law on paper problematic, and then that spills over, pardon the pun, to on the ground, is this discretion that's built into our system. It's extraordinary. I was reading an article today about the, the uh, curl uh, spill and leak in the Globe and Mail. And the uh, the reporter did as good a job as she could do, I think, summarizing what was going on and what the controversy was. You know, the the federal government was, is you know, the Jonathan Wilkinson, Minister of Natural Resources, is talking about how, you know, they, they weren't, the federal government wasn't informed. And, and Martin Olshinsky and Nigel Banks made a couple of comments. But really... My takeaway from this is that even a story like this, you had a leak, you had a spill. I mean, it's 
you know, the, these are fair, while they're, they're, they're bad, uh, they're fairly discrete events, right? You should be able to hone in on them and say, okay, this is what happened. This is what, what, where the mistakes were made. And I noticed in that story, because I've, I've read the AER's environmental protection order. I've read Imperial, what Imperial oil said. I've read what the, uh, the Athabascan uh, Chippewan uh, chief, uh, Ad Alan Adams, what he said about, you know, what we saw on the ground when we flew over in a helicopter and what we live with all the time and capturing the complexity of that and getting it right, getting it precise, you know, what exactly happened and where were the failures were is enormously difficult. I really felt for that reporter. I, it, it's not a criticism of the reporter. It's the difficulty of reporting that story and telling that story in a way that people actually care about and understand. Would, would you agree based on what you've you've seen in the public over the kinds of stories over the years? Yeah, well, I've been I've been following this story really closely since it first broke. And I had a very I had a very similar thought, Martin, which is that the the complexity here is enormous. Now, the complexity, we should be careful to also note that part of the conflict the complexity here. Um, has been exacerbated by the firm and the regulator and the lack of transparency. So that's that's making it difficult to understand what's going on. But on top of that um, is the you know part of part of what's happening in terms of the the dysfunctional relationship between uh, Ottawa and uh, Alberta is is also playing into this and and one of your earlier guests uh Mandy Olsgaard made make this made this point in an article recently which i think she makes the point it's really well taken which is when the federal government is involved at the environmental assessment now we call it impact assessment stage there really isn't sufficient rigor uh given to these assessments and so firms will say well, yes, there are these issues with respect to to so-called tailings ponds and storage facilities, and 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 here's how we're going to mitigate them. And by and large, uh, the federal government uh, says, "Great, good luck with that." Doesn't monitor it, and and courts also tend to rubber stamp it as well. And so, you know, Martin Olsinski is uh, part of his work. He's he's done a really great job at showing that. You know, we pay attention sometimes to these catastrophic events when they occur, but what we should really be concerned with is the overall cumulative effect of leak after leak, failure after failure. Uh, Imperial acknowledged all the way back in 2007, I believe, that, you know, the, this, the land in question is highly permeable. It's not self-sealing. So credit to credit to them for telling the truth about that. But then that just really raises the stakes in terms of the type of protective system we have to have. Let me give you an example of what I found in the documents. Now, it may turn out that I'm wrong about this, but it, this uh, in the in the EPO, uh, what it said was, well, in the media stories that we've seen, it said that remediation uh, cleanup of, uh, is well underway and uh, it'll be done in a timely fashion and not to worry at all, you know, uh, business as usual, everything's great. Here's what the EPO said. The EPO said there are leaks uh, on the in the on-site, so on the curl plant, uh, that will be cleaned up in, in fairly short order. But leaks off-site cannot be got, accessed until 
because uh, there isn't enough time to do it before freshet, which is basically when everything melts and and then you know they all the snow melts and the water runs into the various water bodies. So that essentially means to me, you could that they're not cleaning up all of the leaks. They're cleaning up the on-site leaks, and they have nothing. They have no plan for the off-site leaks because they just can't get to it before freshet. Nobody talks about that's a huge distinction. But it got missed because if when you're reading, first of all, it's easy to, to miss in the EPO. It's just, you know, part of a sentence. Mm. Uh, and and if you're not, if you don't pay, if you're a reporter and you're not working on this stuff all the time, you know, it just, it doesn't click. But that's that's a big miss. Would, wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. And I think in, in one of the stories that I read, uh, Imperial acknowledged that, um, you know, after making that kind of business as usual statement that you pointed out, it acknowledged that it didn't actually know and it wasn't in a position to measure uh, the extent of seepage off-site. So it couldn't actually make any statements about impacts um, with, res with respect to, uh, to fish or, or to waterways. And to me, that signaled, uh, that really stood out and signaled to me a massive monitoring failure. And that would be one of the aspects that you know, when the, when uh, the, the site project and proposal was initially put forward years ago, that would have been one of its promised mitigation elements. So this is the monitoring system that we'll put in place, um, but without actual arm's length oversight of it, I, this is the predictable result that we're left with. Another another mistake here that, uh, okay, so the Chief Adam is really upset that the uh, that his that he wasn't told about this leak for nine months. If you look at the EPO, it says we have charged Imperial Oil with putting in a communications plan and communicating these issues to all of the relevant stakeholders. And Imperial Oil didn't do it. Well, if you if you task if you task if you're the regulator and you task the company to put together a communication plan. It, does it not behoove you to follow up and make sure that the company did in fact do what it order, you ordered it to? Because if you didn't follow through on the communications plan, what else didn't you follow through on your EPO? I agree. I think it, it's absolutely not credible for the regulator in this case uh, to, to simply rely on and to essentially to download the task um, to industry, it has a duty itself. It ought to have a duty, and in fact, it does have a duty under the law to to make this type of uh, release public. Um, if it wants to work hand in hand with the regulated firm in order to to you know to to in order to give the firm an op the opportunity to uh, inform stakeholders and to inform the public, that would be one thing. But to simply um, download the obligation onto a firm that already hadn't been transparent to begin with is, well, it really signals that the Alberta energy regulator doesn't really see serving the public as being a big, a significant part of its mandate. Right. It essentially, this illustrates our point about regulatory capture. It's not, and Nigel Banks said this, he said the AER sees its relationship as bilateral between yeah. the AER and the industry, not trilateral. There's no public, there's no third leg to this stool that represents the, the public. And, and so 
that got get it get get overlooked. Imperial oil either didn't care or you know it just is was blasé about it, and the regulator never bothered to follow up on its EPO and make sure that the you know that the company did what it had promised to do. And, and is that and that strikes me as just a classic case. It illustrates the degree of regulatory capture in this in this instance. Oh, absolutely. I think it's clear, just like the the now defunct and rebranded, you know, National Energy Board, Canadian Energy Regulator, it too saw its role as being a partner of industry. And it when you when you create regulators that have these what I call dual mandates, which is promoting production and promoting the industry but also having a, a public responsibility to environmental protection and public health, you run this risk that the, um, the, the mandate promoting um, economic development and industry development will uh, out-prioritize the, uh, the, the, the public obligation. And uh, so that's absolutely true. I mean, the AER sees itself as a partner. And in fact, it's been designed to be just that. It's gone through various rebrands since 1936, but the, the predominant purpose has always been to facilitate the development of Alberta's oil and natural gas. Right. Uh, it, it's, it would certainly seem that way. And uh, all you have to do is uh, pay attention to Alberta political culture for a while. And you, you realize that uh, everything is geared to uh, facilitating the expansion of the oil and gas industry and making it making it more profitable on the assumption that 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 will create jobs and then create wealth and and for for Albertans and I suppose that's true but at what cost is always the is always the question um there's a a, a topic that I'm going to be interviewing uh Martin Olashinsky about uh probably this week adaptive management mm. and and I would just get you to uh, respond to this briefly or address it briefly my take on adaptive management is uh, you know, you're getting your plan approved. The AAR says, well, what about this? And you go, well, look, I really don't, we don't have the science just at the moment. We really don't have the technology, but we, you know, what, so what we'll do is we'll use an adaptive management approach. And as we go along, we'll improve, improve, improve. It, it'll be an iterative approach. Uh, and, and eventually we'll get to the point where that you wanted us to get to if, on, on whatever the environmental issue issue is. And Martin makes the point that, yeah, and that's how it works in other industries. There's a long history behind adaptive management. But in what it means in, in the culture of the AER and the industry is, yeah, we'll promise that and we'll just uh, kind of, we'll maybe we'll get to it, maybe we won't. And, you know, it's kind of a, a very laissez-faire approach to it. it. Would you agree with Martin? Yeah, Martin wrote a, a wonderful paper a few years back uh, showing the deficiencies in the actual implementation of adaptive management. And adaptive management is almost this uh, magical term that uh, project proponents will utter and say, we will learn continuously by doing. And it requires a rigorous post-project implementation monitoring plan. But that becomes, it can become a significant cost and if it's not integrated into the, the core of the project, um, it becomes something that unfortunately regulators tick the box. Courts sometimes don't, but often have in the past. And again, without 
uh, without independent oversight, it, it can fall by the wayside. I think one of the things that uh, Chief Adam was so upset about is not only the lack of notice and how potentially harmful that can be to his community, but they also have an, a, an agreement in place, essentially a, a variation of an impact and benefit agreement. Um, I think they call it a community benefit agreement in their case. And that has contractual stipulations in it as well uh, that Imperial has to provide notice. And, and oftentimes the way adaptive management regimes are implemented, they can, they're implemented in conjunction with indigenous partners who, um, who will um, play a significant role in the environmental monitoring process in large part because they have the only ecological baseline data in existence because we haven't collected it by we, I mean, you know, Western academics and scientists, but the indigenous nations that have been on the land for thousands of years, their traditional ecological knowledge is effectively ecological baseline knowledge. You can't actually undertake adaptive management without baseline data. You can't understand how some an ecosystem is changing, what the level of pollution or toxicity is and impacts on the human beings that are there and, and the wildlife without the without the baseline. But the practice uh, seems to be that it's it's something that we pay lip service to, but we're not actually doing the hard work. Now, I, earlier in this interview, I said that you know, in fairness to the regulator, uh, you know, none of we're, we're not talking about corruption. Nobody's in anybody's pockets. There aren't isn't money being exchanged. But maybe, you know, there are some exceptions to this, because in my conversations now with these professionals who are either A, working in the in, in the oil sands industry currently, or B, just have, have been up until, until recently, and some of these are very senior people. And one of the stories I was told is, you know, the by a former employee of the, the regulator who said, uh, I can't put that data, we don't have that, I can't put that data in the in the report. And he said to the, the employee, it will be in the report. Do you understand? You're going to put that data in the report. And I said, so, you know, so the obvious implication that your, your kind of your job's on the line. And that, so is that an example of corruption? And is it very common in these kinds of situations? So great question. Just to back up to the, the first part of what you said earlier in the conversation, as a general matter, I would tend to agree the way in which we think about regulatory capture, it's a kind of systemic corruption of the public interest, not necessarily criminal. And in fact, in most cases, far more banal than that. It isn't, you know, secret exchange bribes and hush money. It's really just, well, I see the world the way the industry sees the world, or I'd like to work in the industry one day, so I'm going to try and cultivate a good relationship. There can, however, be cases and how frequent they, they are is a difficult question to answer in the abstract because of course these things tend to happen behind closed doors. But in situations where there's a lot of economic pressure and public pressure, especially in Alberta, this may be fair or unfair, but I couldn't help but take away uh, the Premier Daniel Smith's concern and her reaction seemed to be more that this is making headlines, that this is hurting Alberta's reputation more than the actual impacts themselves. There's such pressure in Alberta to change the image, the regulatory image 
of the industry to make it more acceptable to investors and, and to other markets um, that there can be cover-ups. And in an instance like you just described, well, that would be fraud, right? And that would be criminal. That would be actionable. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't say necessarily that regulatory capture never crosses over from the systemic corruption of what's legal toward what's illegal. There can be illegal acts as well. Uh, I wanted to, uh, part of the, what the uh, government is doing, and, and Danielle Smith doesn't make this argument as explicit as former Premier Jason Kenney, her predecessor made it. And he was, the industry is on and on all the time about how unfair ESG metrics are to the Alberta industry environment, social, and governance metrics that help guide investors as to where to put their capital. And the uh, the Alberta industry, <laughs> frankly, does really poor on environmental. And a large part of it is because their emissions are so high, you know, which are a big, big issue right now, but also some on the in environmental performance side. And but they do do relatively well on on you know social things like you know relationships with First Nations and you know making putting getting creating jobs and those sorts of things. But but Kenny used to all rail against this. You know why why are you know other why is it just us being singled out? Why aren't why don't we get credit for our our S and our G? And you're always focusing on E, you big bad Wall Street types. And. <laughs> And and this and and this reminds me of this is part of the problem is that when you is as we go forward uh, and ESG becomes even more important uh, for for uh, attracting capital to the industry you can't um, you can't convince investors with words that your E is good when you've got these kinds of things going on it almost becomes in the industry self interest to have robust uh, regulation and then abide by that regulation so that your E is good and you can attract capital. It, I don't know. Well, what's your take on that? Well, if you could actually achieve, uh, you know, strong environmental performance, you know, as we, as you know, as we seep into the emissions part of this, I mean, that's where things become a lot less complicated. Um, you know, the, the, the oil sands are a carbon bomb, independent climate models um, are definitive about this, that if, you know, if we want to have even just a 50-50% chance of staying within 1.5 degrees Celsius, now I know people have given up on that target, but just for the sake of illustration, to have even just a 50-50 chance of staying within 1.5, independent climate models published in journals like Nature show that 83% of the oil sands proven reserves have to stay underground. So I think part of why Premier Kenny uh, used to rail so much against the E and ESG is that Alberta just can't meet it. So its alternative is greenwashing, you know, and the the energy war room, and really attacking any form of criticism of the industry because it just can't meet the performance. Right, political pushback becomes part of regulatory capture, uh, be, because in this case, it's not just the regulator that's been captured; it's the government that's, that's been captured. So we've talked about the politicians. But one thing that came up occasionally in my conversation with these uh, professionals and experts uh, about the, the leak and the spill uh, at Curl is the extent to which the Department of Energy is captured. 
and that very often the Department of Energy appears to intervene on behalf of industry with the regulator. Yeah, I mean, again, and and it's you know, I as an academic, I'm I'm prone to try and introduce nuance or say, but you also have to consider this. But the fact is, is that the Alber the Alberta oil sands, if if you were looking to introduce students to the concept of regulatory capture, you could hardly find a better example. I mean, it's it's capture by design. It's capture that's deeply entrenched in history. Um, as you pointed out, uh, Premier Notley in the opposition party, I think the first campaign promise that she resiled on early within the first 100 days of her mandate was her campaign promise to uh, increase the royalties on the industry, which, of course, if you did that, you could begin uh, funding your independent regulator. She backed off of that very, very quickly and then became a very vocal proponent of the Trans Mountain uh, pipeline expansion project, which I think just recently is now at the $30 billion mark in terms of cost overruns. Now, we could have a debate about, about why that is. But um, so it would be a shock to me that there was any ministry within the provincial government of Alberta. And we should also talk about the federal government in this, but it would be a shock to me that there would be any arm of the provincial government that wasn't aligned and on the same page which is all about getting Alberta's resources to markets. Well, let's talk about the federal government because um, I, I, I've been spending a lot of my time as a reporter looking at the, the provincial, like the AER scenario, but not so much the federal government. What are the federal government's responsibilities here under legislation and regulation uh, towards the spill at, and, and leak at Curl? Sure. So the federal government does have a role, it does have jurisdiction here, both under the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, which regulates uh, toxins and contaminants, and also the Fisheries Act, and also with respect to its jurisdiction over migratory birds, uh, because tailings ponds are, are, are an existential threat to migratory birds. And the way this system is supposed to work, because the federal government, going back to your earlier point about the complexity of all this on the ground, the federal government is not on the ground here. So there is a requirement uh, for the province, for the, the regulator to report uh, to the federal government. And that appears not to have happened here. This is a, a very good example of where Canadian environmental law, where it works at its best or on paper, uh, we have a cooperative federalist system. Neither level of government has exclusive jurisdiction. And of course, there's a big fight about that uh, coming up to the Supreme Court of Canada later in this month. Uh, maybe you'll have me on the show to talk about that because that's going to be a really important case that will impact issues like this going forward. But the reality on the ground is there's a broken relationship between Alberta and the federal government with respect to environmental protection. So Alberta is, uh, sorry, uh, Ottawa is in a tough situation here. It wants to work cooperatively with the province on the one hand, but it needs the province to be a willing cooperator. But on the other hand, the federal government is just as interested in uh, oil sands development as the Alberta government is. I know not all Albertans agree with that, but because of the, you know, the singular economic importance of oil and gas exports, uh, you know, the federal government is all in on this as well. And so I would 
uh, respectfully disagree with some of my colleagues who would say, oh, this is a clear case of why we need a stronger federal government role. I don't think the situation would be any different. Federal environmental law is is pretty patchy and isn't performing very well either. Well, and in this particular case, based on comments made by uh, Jonathan Wilkinson, uh, the Enarcan minister, it, it appears that the the provincial government didn't inform the federal government because basically it was waffling about well, did it meet the the threshold for uh, the need to to inform? Like I don't know how you spill five hundred and five point three million liters of of a potentially toxic uh, substance and and decide that that's not you know and it doesn't meet the threshold to to let your buddies in Ottawa know what's going on. That that seems like a, a pretty big stretch to me. But um, I guess to, to I, I don't know how we finish this interview without me asking you, uh, how do we fix this? And I'm sure that would take multiple interviews uh, for you to properly address it. But if you could address it succinctly, how do we fix it? <laughs> that is, a, it's a very, very difficult question. In, in this particular case, uh, because capture is is so entrenched it, it's the it's the business model it's the regulatory model itself nothing short of a sea change in underlying values and norms will suffice so i was reading some statistics earlier today uh suggesting uh poll data uh suggesting that albertans have little trust in the aer and i couldn't help but think but what did you expect you voted for this election after election after election. So unless and until Albertans, a majority of Albertans come together and demand a science-based, independent, robust regulatory regime, you won't have one. Yeah, I can I can see that. I've, I've been lived in uh, in Alberta for eleven years uh, prior to moving to BC and and reporting on uh, on Alberta for the last fifteen years. Uh, the culture there is that uh, all things bend to the pr primacy of uh, jobs and economic growth and prosperity. And while we all we all you know mouth the you know, good intentions and we want to protect the environment and you won't find a oil sands company that doesn't, you know, in their, in their, uh, uh, what do they call it? The, every year they have to report, they provide a report on, on, you know, on their comp compliance, uh, corporate safety, corporate, whatever it is. Anyway, uh, you know, they all talk about how, what wonderful stewards of the, of the environment they are. And, and there's just such a culture of of concealment and greenwashing and frankly bullshit that goes on right from the CEOs to the head of the AER and down into the popular culture and into the government and and it's it's deeply rooted and I yeah I, I don't know what you do it sounds like you're as as, as much of a uh, as pessimistic as I am so any final words on this Jason before we uh, we wrap up. Nothing other than thanks for having me on. I hope we can talk about these issues going forward. And I really, I want to just congratulate you for doing that 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 dive down the rabbit hole into regulatory capture because regulatory capture really is the root problem of Canadian environmental law and Canadian energy and climate law. 
And so Canadians need to better understand the deep structural nature of, of the problems that we're facing. There are no superficial silver bullet magic fixes here. Indeed. And if you work up, if, 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 if regulatory capture is the root cause, and then you work your way up the route and you, you find government capture and then you find political capture and then you find cultural capture. And I don't know what comes after that because I think you've pretty much captured everything at that point. So, at, that point at that point, you have. Jason, thank you very much. Really appreciate your insights. Thanks, Markham. Thank you.